G'day wherever you are around the world, and thank you for joining us once again on truth2u.org. That's truth number two, letter u.org. I'm Jono, and joining me is Jason Spiritual Babies. G'day, mate. Good evening, Jono. How are you, my friend? I'm very good. Thanks very much. Good to know, and it so happens that once again you and I have been reading the same book. Oh, yeah. And we're um, very happy to have back someone we spoke to a few months ago. It's a big thrill. We did. It happens to be the same author, an author who is the chair of the Department of Religious Studies of the uh, University of North Carolina in Charlotte, where he is the professor of Christian origins and ancient Judaism. He's got a whole lot of other books too, Jason, that obviously we're going to have to read. And uh, But the one that we are talking about today is entitled Restoring Abrahamic Faith. Welcome back to the program, Dr. James Tabor. Good to be with you, Jono and Jason. Thank you. Was that Jason? Was that your attempt at, at, at simulating that applause? was my, that, that was my crowd noise because it just it sounded like you were just you know breathing into the okay anyway. Dr. Jason, don't tell anyone. anyone. That's exactly I, what I was doing. I think we should all tell what time it is where we are. <laughs> <laughs> so it's That's, eight o'clock Eastern. I'm in the United States in North it's, Carolina. It's a very it's a very comfortable ten a.m. in uh, New South Wales, Australia, where I am. And Jason. That's one a.m. It's, it's one a.m. and that's the, that's the kind of special effects that you get when it's one a.m. Right? That's that's what you that's, that's what you get if you want to you want to right. wake Jason up at one a.m. You're going to get those kind of special effects and nothing better. Yeah, that's right. All right. Anyway, Dr. James Table. Now, listen. Before we even begin, I, I, I want to talk about this excellent book. Boy, it's a good book. I'm so glad to have read it. Restoring Abrahamic Faith. This is a book, and, and Jason, I know you agree. I, I wish I read this book probably oh, 20 years ago. <laughs> it would have saved me a lot of trouble. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. And like I said, I've, I'm just returning to it now to read it twice. And I highly recommend it to everybody. There's, there's no one that I would say, no, don't read this book. This, everyone can benefit from this book. Let, let me ask you just by way of beginning, what motivated you to write this book? When, what, when was it when you wrote this book and what, what drove you to write it? Okay, first of all, let me just say I, this is a self-published book. All of my other books are done with you know major publishers like Simon & Schuster and University Presses. So that tells you that it's very much of a personal book. It's not my part of my academic career to write this book. It started as a 45-page pamphlet that I wrote in 1993. Then it became about a 100-page, like 8.5 by 11 spiral-bound kind of thing. And then I turned it into a regular book. Now, as you know, it's nicely bound, beautifully printed, Mm. perfectly typeset, just like any other book. But it had that evolution. And what motivated me to write it was... I wanted to say to mostly Christians, I'd say, but also to Jews and to Muslims and to just secular human beings, if they were interested in it, uh, or people of any faith, what would it be like to simply take the Hebrew Bible, not the New Testament, although it quotes the New Testament quite a bit because I deal with Jesus, but Mm. just to take the Hebrew Bible, you know, the so-called Old Testament, which I prefer to call the Hebrew Bible or the only testament I sometimes refer to it as, mm, mm. and take that and and tell the, the universal story of Abrahamic faith. The Bible is essentially, the Hebrew Bible is essentially the story of one man's family. By the time you get, we're just talking about the flood. You know, the flood is in chapter 6 through 9, 
chapter six through nine. And by the time you get to chapter 12, you focused in on a single man. He's called Abram, later Abraham. And the rest of the entire Bible is about the promise to him and to his family. That is Abrahamic faith. However, that faith in the very first promise of Genesis 12, it has seven points to it, that he would become a great nation, that he would be made great, he would be given a land and a promise, but that in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Mm. So Abrahamic faith is my phrase for this universal promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3. And also it's repeated later in Genesis when it's before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. One of my favorite verses where Abraham bargains with God mm. and, and, he, and God says, you know, I'm going to share with you something, Abraham, because you're my friend, he says, and because I have known you. And the word known there, yada, really means I've been intimate with you. It's used, as you know, for even sexual intercourse, meaning mm -hmm. we've really formed a bond together. And because you will teach your offspring and your household the way of the Lord or mm. Yahweh, Hashem, by teaching them justice and righteousness. So you get the plan there that Abraham is supposed to be the ultimate teacher. So I'm not talking here just about Judaism as it develops over the centuries, or even the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai through Moses, and later the revelation of the prophets. That's part of the Abrahamic faith, and I cover that in the book. But it's broader than that because it's not simply one nation, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, getting the Torah, but it's be them becoming then a light to all the nations. So the rabbis would probably call this uh, Noahide, which is a strange word if you've never heard it, but it's from the word Noah. The idea of the faith of all humankind descending from Noah. But I focus in on Abraham because that's when the plan actually starts. And there's the plan to enlighten the nation starts with Abraham. So that's Abrahamic faith. Abrahamic faith is joining up, signing up, aligning yourself with a cause. And it's not joining Judaism. It's not joining Christianity. It's not joining any religion. It's actually aligning yourself with the Creator in keeping mm. with what God intended to do through Abraham as it's revealed in both the Torah and the prophets and the writings, the whole mm. Bible. So that would be the broad explanation. That's very broad. But as you know, I, because I came from a Christian background, mm -hmm. I, it's a personal manifesto. So I write with a passion for Christianity as well and what it became, and that's what I also study in my career. And so I talk a lot about Abrahamic faith from the standpoint of Jesus and early Christianity as well, because I want it to be relevant to Jesus. And others, I think Yeshua, or the historical Jesus, was very much for Abrahamic faith. So I want to use him as one of my allies, because he also spoke to Gentiles, he it's prophesied, uh, he thought he, I believe he thought he was the Messiah, that he thought he was the suffering servant. If you remember, the suffering servant brings light to the nation. So he saw that as his mission. And that's the mission of Abrahamic faith. And so 
There's quite a bit in there about Christianity. And so I think Christians could be comfortable reading this book. It's not a Christian bashing book, but it's not a, uh, I wouldn't, it, in no way is it what people call, you know, Messian, Messianic Jewish either. No. It simply deals with that historically. So I love that uh, in the opening of, of this book, in the introduction, the very first thing you do is quote from the Tanakh, and you quote from, of course, uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, Thus says Yehovah, stand on the highways and see and ask for the old paths, which you have in bold, the old paths, where the way is, uh, is good, and walk upon it, and you shall find rest for your souls. And this is really what you're claiming uh, Jesus intended to do. That was his intention, was to bring people back to the old path, uh, the, the Bible that he had, which, of course, is the Tanakh. And you make mention that uh, in the introductions, it says thousands of, of Christians who love God in the Bible are now being drawn back to a more original understanding of the faith of Jesus through a process of the historical investigation of the Hebraic roots of the very Christianity that has nourished them. And is it fair to say, I mean, so much of your work has been to discover the historical Jesus or to discover the, the historical Paul. Is this book, in a sense, uh, an attempt to discover the historical Abraham? Not so much Abraham as the message of Abraham, because, you know, we all we have on Abraham is in those few chapters of Genesis. It's pretty clear. There's a lot we, you know, we'd always like to know more about any biblical character, but um, it's not really the historical Abraham as much as the message or, let's say, the the program of Abraham. You know, wh why was he called and for what purpose? Um the thing about Jesus and the historical Jesus and the so-called Jewish roots, I mean, think what we've seen over the last 25 or 30 years. Back uh, 25, 30, let's go back 40 years. I'm old enough to do this. Uh, there was Herbert W. Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God mm. on the radio preaching all over the English-speaking world and other countries as well, but particularly Australia, Britain. Canada, the United States, every night on the radio, all over, uh, this kind of Judaic message. It was Judaic in the sense that, you know, wait, there are the feasts of the Lord, and, you know, there's the Sabbath, and the mm. dietary laws, and mm. the Torah, and Jesus was a Torah-observant Jew, and we should be too, and so forth. So he had his version of that that went way beyond the Seventh-day Adventists, much more towards uh, what I would call a Hebraic faith. But he still thought Jesus was God in a certain way. He called him the Son of God, but he thought, he, you know, there's God the Father and God the Son, and he mm -hmm. was eternal and preexist. He certainly thought he was the Messiah, raised from the dead. So, you know, all of these things, he wasn't a Trinitarian, but, but he wasn't a Unitarian either because he thought you should worship Jesus. And he actually referred to Jesus as the Yahweh or Jehovah of the Old Testament. So that's quite a, quite a step. Mm. And as you know, many Christians say that with great ease today. It doesn't bother them all to say that. But uh, but if you think back to those times, that's all there was. You know, and then there were the Adventists, and that was about it. Uh, this is even before so-called Jews for Jesus or any of that. But then if you look at the last 20, 25, 30 years, even if you go to like a Bible bookstore, there'll be a whole section mm. on the feasts of the Lord, uh, the Torah, how to do Passover, how to do this. Now, granted, they mix in 
a lot of messianic, so-called messianic Jewish material that I personally wouldn't endorse. But at least, you know, they're studying the Hebrew Bible. They're talking about Jesus was a Jew. I mean, you have Pastor Hagee down in San Antonio. He's telling his people not to eat pork. Mm-hmm. And uh, to I think they wear prayer shawls because they want to pray like Jesus. And I don't know if he's gone. I don't think he's gone to the Sabbath yet, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did in some spiritual way. Because there's, like, like you said, there's, there's a demand for this. And when you go into the bookstore, I mean, it's very, very telling that there's a whole section of uh, of a more Hebraic approach, uh, a return to the Tanakh, at least within some respects. Uh, and where there is a demand, there's a dollar. And if there's a dollar, it's in the book bookstores. Because people are craving something a little more authentic, and when they get a taste of it, they want more, and it seems to be growing, right? Now, what I'm noticing, for years, when I would meet someone that was leaning toward a Hebraic faith, I, I would just say, oh, Worldwide Church of God, you know, like you, and and I would almost be right. Now, mm-hmm. though, you're finding people that say, no, you know, I, I've heard of Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God, but no, I never was part of that. I just started reading my Bible, and I started noticing things like, wait a minute, it says in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 that the seventh day is the Sabbath, not the first day of the week, mm. and things like that. Or it says, you know, not to eat this or that food, and I'm finding, are you finding, I'm going to ask both of you, I'm finding more and more people are, are returning to this kind of thing through their own Bible study or their own spiritual journey. It's not necessarily through a church or, you know, some group. Now, many still come from all kinds of groups and directions, but but uh, I run into more and more people that, more that and are more. just kind of coming on their own. How about you? Jason, in Ireland, do you, do you, do you find that? Actually, you know, in Ireland, not so much. I have to say, um, being on the edge of Europe is is, is kind of disappointing. There are um, there are a couple of what you might call messianic groups um, in the north, literally two that I know of. Um, both of them are a handful of people, um, but the, the the middle ground hasn't been covered. We've got a, we've got a tiny Jewish community, and most of the rest of the religious uh, faction here are going to be um, Catholics and Protestants that still go to Sunday church. They they kind of they don't really wouldn't really read their Bibles at home and they don't read they're not really into um, Bible study and because of that they just yeah. haven't looked. It tends to be in the cultures that are really drawn toward the Bible. You know, they carry Bibles, right? They read the Bible, they hear the Bible. That's I think where you're going to find it mostly. And and the, and the states are certainly much more like that. I mean, when I look at uh, the statistics of of those who listen to Truth to You. Countries all around the world, but but certainly the most dominant is the states, and then you know then Canada and Australia, New Zealand, Israel, and, and so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. but certainly in the states, uh, it, it gets the most hits. Now you you do say here, uh, and I'm still in the int- introduction. The Abrahamic faith, by which you mean the core biblical faith reflected within the Hebrew Bible, rests on three foundational concepts. And simply put, these are, number one, knowing God, following the way of God, and number three, participating in the plan of God. Now, you do have chapters on each of those, and then you also have a chapter uh, in the book entitled The Messiahs, plural, The Messiahs, and lastly, Turning to God. But just on those three, can you can you give us a, a quick elaboration yeah, of those? It's really simply organized. I mean, just from what you read, I mean, how 
more simple could you get than that? And yet, it's not simplistic. Those are very, very profound points. You know, who is God and how would you know God? What is the way of God? You know, if Abraham's going to teach the way of Jehovah, what is that way? And I mean the way for all humankind. I I don't mean just what people identify as Judaism. We're talking about a universal faith. You know, Abraham wasn't actually Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, when he got this call, he wasn't even circumcised. And when he takes up the cause, and and then finally, how would some kind of plan that is if God is doing something on the planet with humanity, what what is that prophetic plan or how does it unfold? The other the those three chapters are intended to introduce you to the core. And then I realized that two more chapters were needed uh, because people are going to say at the end of those, oh, that's fine. I believe all that. But what about the Messiah? And they would say singular, the Messiah. And I think I say somewhere in the book, uh, you know, there are two things that God says in the Bible that he never wanted. One is a human king and the other is a temple made with bricks and stone or stone, mm-hmm. not necessarily bricks. One is Second Samuel 7, uh, about the temple and the king, mm. uh, both there, uh, about the temple. And then the king, of course, when, when uh, Samuel is told by God, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And I find it interesting that fast forward, uh, what, 3,000 years, and the two things that Christians and Jews want most is the Messiah and a temple. <laughs> You know, isn't that interesting? Mm. So if those were the two things that God said he never even wanted, but in both cases allowed them to have, maybe that's not necessarily, maybe that shouldn't be part of the first three points. But I felt that you got to talk about the Messiah because that's what everybody wants to talk about. And Christians define themselves by faith in Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah. But I do as you noted, title it The Messiahs, mm-hmm. because in the Bible, there's not just one Messiah. There are two that are, I'm talking about future Messiahs. There's a priestly as well as a kingly Messiah. And I try to lay out the whole broader view using the Dead Sea Scrolls, using the Hebrew Bible, using Jewish tradition, to make the point that this is much more complicated than people might assume. And that really, without sounding too cute here, expecting either one, two, or even three messiahs is no big deal compared to the big expectation, and that's what I call the second coming of Jehovah, or of mm-hmm. the Lord of God. And that's, I, I try to get the chapter, I try in that chapter to get people to focus on what the Bible is focused upon You know, there's an old slogan, I came from the Churches of Christ, it's called in the United States, the Restoration Movement. And this slogan was picked up by Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone and others who are part of that movement. They didn't originate it, but to speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible is silent. And I would like to add and emphasize things where the Bible emphasizes them. So they didn't say that, but I'm saying that. So, yes, the Messiah is there. There There's ten chapters in the Hebrew Bible, ten verses that mention the Messiah, 
the Davidic Messiah. I cover all ten. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're going to be really surprised when you read them because you probably thought there were more. And when you actually read them, uh, the Messiah, coming Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, does play an important role, but nothing compared to the greater role of what's going to happen. As Messiah helps facilitate a greater cause. But yes. the idea of making the Messiah God or focusing on the Messiah as if, oh, woe is to us, we'll never do anything till the Messiah comes. And everybody's always talking about, you know, everything. Christians is everything is Jesus. And for many Jews, everything is when the Messiah comes. And the biblical emphasis is on something else. And I'll let people read the book and find out. I've alluded mm-hmm. to it, but you're going to be surprised. And I'm telling you, it's it's. I think it's just as plain as as could be when you read it. You, for me, and Jason, I don't know if it's the same same for you, but uh, James, you you uh, invoked me, uh, or you made me ask myself questions that I had not asked before, and piqued my curiosity. Then you delved into prophecy, which I very much appreciated because. I realized I needed some clarity, and so I read those parts of the books, uh, the book with, uh, with great interest. And I also found it very relieving, I have to say, to, to read those latter two chapters, The Messiahs and Turning to God. J- Jason, what, what, what are some of the things that, uh, that you, you experienced or, or things that you found of interest in the book? Um, well, no, my journey, um, like lots of the listeners, will have, will have come from the church and then uh, kind of a, a foray into the messianic movement. And what that does is that it strips back your understanding, your Christian understanding, mm. um, so it suddenly radically changes um, and hovers around kind of, um, I don't want to say a Jewish theme, but a Torah theme. And what what the book did is it, it took that even further back and it, and it made me... Um, it made me look at what I was what I was uh, doing, what I was reading, and, and how I was trying to implement that into my life. Um, and I realized that I was kind of starting a third of the way through my Tanakh um, and, in regards to my relationship with, with the Creator. And what, what the book kind of strips back is it takes you right back to Abraham. And what what and what that does is it, it gives me um, it gives me a story of this man who's who really is the first. You know, in the, in the populated world, the first um, person that really we we perceive as a monotheist, who who went in faith and didn't know where he was going, and um, and that step alone brought him into a direct relationship with God, and that um, that when I when I looked at that and I thought, well, you know, that this tour is amazing. But you need to travel to get to that point. You know, I want at the moment I wanted to strip away all this Christianity and make me start in the Torah part. But how do I know I'm ready for the Torah part? Um, and so the book made me um, investigate that quite thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love as well is when I'm when I'm looking at the chapter headers, um, knowing God, the way, the plan, the Messiah, and turning to God. It's the exact opposite of what I was told in the church. As in the, the church gives you the book in the other order, it tells you to turn to God, then you get the Messiah, then you get the plan, then you get the way, and then you're told that you can know God. And um, I, I, don't, you know, I don't know if that was purposeful, but it, it, um, it said a lot to me. And the knowing God chapter is, you know, it's almost being evangelistic at the end. Let's say you read the whole book and you say, okay, uh, I'd like to, what, do this or be this or... Uh, you know, this is this is something that's drawing me. What do you really do? It's almost saying, and what do I do to be saved? You know, mm. and many people have found that to be the most inspiring part of the book. the The rest of the book is learning and 
you know, lots and lots of information. Boy, how many scriptures do I quote in that book? It's got oh, just so many. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. But finally, at the end, it, it has a kind of a sweeping personal conclusion for people. And I find people are, find it very moving. Mm. And uh, also, uh, I should say, the chapter on the plan, backing up a little, the third is it the third chapter, I, I do talk about the lost tribes of Israel. That's mm. an important topic, I think, that is often left out because when people think of Israel, they just think of the Jewish people. And yet Hosea, particularly, and other prophets make very clear that there are these two houses mm. of Israel and one was scattered by the Assyrians a hundred and or so years before the Jews were scattered by the Babylonians, and most Bible students know this, but um, I do talk about that as well. I, I really want people to read the book for its content. In other words, I'll, I'll be honest with you. My other books have content, yes, of course, but they're trade books. I also want to sell them. Every author wants to sell their books, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I published with Simon & Schuster. That's a trade publisher. And, of course, I hope people read the book and are helped by it, like we did Paul and Jesus last time. Mm. But I also, you know, I don't sell that book. The publisher sells it, you understand? Mm. Whereas this book I'm distributing, and the reason I'm distributing is because I want people to have it. You see the difference? Absolutely. Now, there's, there's, no, there's no middle company. It's published by Genesis 2000, which is basically my dining room table. So I, uh, I would highly recommend that people get more than one copy or at least get one copy with the intention of sharing it because, well, James, when, when you and I met in Israel, I left uh, a copy of the book with a family member and uh, to whom a lot of this would be very, very new. And because the book is so engaging immediately, uh, th this family member did read it in the, in the couple of weeks that I was away and very much appreciated it, told me that they read it and, and uh, expressed uh, how clarifying it was for them and how precise this book was and how it nutshells key themes and they, they found it very revealing. So I would, I would uh, recommend that everybody get it. If you haven't got a copy of this book, you really need to get a copy of this book. Everyone can benefit from it. Restoring Abrahamic Faith by Dr. James D. Table, my friend. Thank you so much for coming back on the program. And thank you, Jason. Spiritualbabies.net. Really, really, dear listeners, this is one of the books that I would just so highly recommend everybody have. And buy one for a friend who you think may be interested. Because if you think they may be, I guarantee they will be. It's an engaging book. They'll read it and they'll thank you for it. So again, Restoring Abrahamic Faith, James Tabor. Always good to be with you. I hope we talk again soon. Bye-bye.